Everyone, welcome to session 88 of the Behavioral Observations Podcast. Boy, do I have a great show for you today. Dr. Ellie Kazimi joins me to discuss her work in supervision, leadership, and technology in applied behavior analysis. We even talk about how she originally saw Skinner as the original bad boy. If you're wondering what that means, stick around. We'll explain in a little bit. As you'll hear in the show, I met Ellie at last year's Hoosier ABA conference and really enjoyed chatting with her. Over the last few months, we've been trying to coordinate extending our conversation on the podcast, so six or seven months later, here we are. Ellie, along with Brian Rice and Dr. Peter Adzian, have recently published Fieldwork and Supervision for Behavior Analysts, a handbook. If you want to check that out, there's a link to that in the show notes. It's a really great book. It's gotten a lot of fantastic reviews, and it's an area that we need more resources in, so... Today's show is sponsored by two organizations. The first one is Go Lotus. Go Lotus's mission is to break down the barriers of how we gather, process, and share information for our clients. From practice management to data collection, they do it all, and it's so simple your entire team can be up and running in less than an hour. If you want to get their data tracking system free for 90 days, go to golotus.com forward slash register and use the promo code MATT. There's some other discounts available too. So again, head over to golotus.com forward slash register for more info. We're also brought to you today by HRI Colorado. Even though they have the word Colorado in their name, HRI will find you your dream job just about anywhere. And if you're an agency, they'll help you find your dream candidate. For more information, go to hricolorado.com forward slash contact and let their 30 years of recruiting experience work for you. All right, we'll hear a little bit more from these sponsors as we get into the show, but for now, let's get to our conversation straight away. So without any further ado, please enjoy this fun chat with Dr. Ellie Kazimi. Welcome to the Behavioral Observations Podcast, stimulating talk for today's behavior analysts. Now here's your host, Matt Sicoria. Dr. Ellie Kazimi, thanks for joining me today on the Behavioral Observations Podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Matt. It's wonderful to talk with you. I've been a huge fan of yours. Oh, uh, well, 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 same, same here. I've, uh, and I, I think uh, I've been, a, I've been a fan of yours since we uh, uh, finally got a chance to kind of meet in person at, uh, at the Hoosier ABA conference, and uh, yeah, I had a, had a chance to see you do the closing keynote and uh, and hang out and stuff like that. So it's great to finally have you on the podcast where you can talk more about all the cool things you have going on. <laughs> Wait, so what I'm hearing is you became a fan after you met me. I've been a fan of yours way before then. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know what I mean. Okay, thanks. For start, starting right out of the gate with teasing, I see. Okay. Um, all right, so uh, we've got uh, one of the, the, the neat things about the work that you've done is you're, you've, you're practicing behavior analysis in a number of different areas. And so we're going to try to tap into uh, as many of those as time permits. Uh, but I'd like to start by asking you how you first discovered behavior analysis and what made you want to pursue it as a career. Um, wait, what's behavior analysis? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, um, I'll, I'll be a little bit more serious. The truth is that my journey to behavior analysis was this long and windy road. I've 
given some thought to, um, you know, how to, how to talk about the, that road. Cause there were many different forces in my life that brought me to my destination. And I think that's probably true for a lot of people, but I think my experience was unique in that I was completing my PhD at UCLA in uh, psychological studies, um, in education. So I was, uh, not at all in behavior analysis. I was doing some work um, in learning disabilities and anxiety disorders, and I'd worked with individuals with different disabilities. One of my advisor was uh, one of my advisors was Bob Hodap, who did a lot of work with different genetic disabilities uh, associated with mental retardation. So I had worked with all these different populations, individuals with Prader-Willi syndrome, but completely from a different perspective, from a developmental uh, clinical perspective. But I was, in my own career, I was kind of finding all of that not empirical enough. Um, I, my father's an engineer, so I have an empirical mind. And, you know, I was raised to kind of think about things in this cause and effect. And I was finding myself much more in love with the methodology. So I was doing a lot more work in um, assessment and standardized assessment tools. And, you know, just like I think in behavior analysis and any doctoral program, your advisor kind of brings forth new uh, students every year. And those people then become your mentee. You're expected as a senior member of lab to mentor and supervise the incoming students and so for my dissertation work, I was very lucky to have this woman who, uh, her name is uh, Dr. Grace Cho, who became my mentee at the time. And, you know, in any mentorship relationship, you've got this back and forth interaction. So she was mentoring me in many ways. She would look at some of the measures I had developed for my dissertation, and I would be training her to use them. And she'd say to me, hey, you know, um, do you know anything about behavior analysis? And my response was, yeah, yeah, that is not what we do. That's fourth floor, low boss downstairs, <laughs> not what I do. Um, and I think my very clear response to this aversive, like, no, made her approach it very differently, which I think has had a huge impact in my career uh, as a behavior analyst. She never tried again. She didn't shove it down my throat. But as she would participate in different parts of my dissertation, she would say, Ellie, that's that's brilliant. You're collecting data, direct observations of, of these behaviors. You know, let me bring you some things I have learned um, that may help you. And she was introducing me to Alan Kasdan's uh, book at the time and single subject designs. And then when I was calculating my inner observer agreements, of course, I was going to only things I knew, you know, Kappa, which is because I had a strong background in statistics. And she was like, you know, have you considered um, other ways to calculate this? And I'd say, look, there aren't any. And she'd say, here's a chapter from, you know, Pennypacker's book. And it, it was just these uh, informative, small uh, sessions of wonderful information that made me kind of fall in love with what she knew. So she was mentoring me in many ways. And then the sources, of course, led me to Skinner and I was, I was in love. So my journey is different, I think, because the truth is, you know, when you find something new at the end of your dissertation work, at least for me, I was at first very angry. Um, I wondered where this had been all my life when I found Skinner. Um, I cried. I was like, this has been here just this, this whole time. Really? And, um, yeah, yeah, wow. I, I, I did. I, and I was angry because 
when I would talk to my advisors about it, these were people I trusted. These are individuals that have built strong foundations in reading research um, and, you know, being a good researcher. But their response to me was kind of like, you know, when you like the, that bad boy and you're asking people about, about him because you're lured by this, you know, person. And all my advisors were like cautioning me against it. Like, no, 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 no. That's not where you want to be. <laughs> so in this case, the bad boy actually turned out to be okay. <laughs> or, oh, so Skinner, Skinner, was the, Skinner as the bad boy. That's the, <laughs> we've got the title for this episode already. And it's, we're not even five minutes into it. <laughs> it's totally true, though. I think, you know, I think back and I think to myself how, how brilliant it was that Grace never shoved the field down my throat. I was welcome to it. I didn't feel like what I was doing was wrong or that there was the light I wasn't seeing, but rather she introduced me to the most important components, the very things that may change in my work and showed me the power first. Um, and then, yeah, I jumped on the bike with the bad boy and married him. <laughs> That's awesome. So, uh, so you, did that cause you to change the trajectory of your graduate work, you know, given this, uh, exposure to behavior analysis or did you like finish your PhD and then kind of get more into behavior analysis as a result of that? Or you just kind of talk about how you kind of wrapped up your, your graduate training from there and take us through kind of where you are right now. Well, um, Grace Cho had been a BCBA when she entered my lab and was helping me with my dissertation work. And it was really toward the end of my dissertation work that she had joined the lab. So I was able to um, learn a lot from her and essentially start to get a new degree. Because once I found behavior analysis, although I felt like it had been the thing I'd been looking for and I was strong in methodology, so things very much appealed to me and made sense to me. I still had to read and do a lot of homework. Um, but I was in communication with my advisors, and they knew. They knew that this is happening. They knew I was going to marry this boy. It was clear to them that I, that I was you know, going to do this. So um, when I found that the job at Cascade Northridge advertised in behavior analysis, I, I was really excited about that. Um, because I think, you know, having had such a long, windy road made me feel like everyone should know behavior analysis is there. Now, it may not be for everyone. That, that's a fine. But it's not fair for them to not know uh, what the field is and that to not know the secrets of the field is you know, I think just not right. And so when I saw the job at Cassidy Northridge, I was, I think in many ways, highly motivated to uh, build a curriculum. So when I joined the faculty at CSUN, I was also beginning my journey as a behavior analyst. In fact, my first year, I was helping Grace Cho develop the first coursework in BCBA in China, in actually in the East, so in Asia. So I think she was in Korea at Seoul University at the time. And as I was helping her build the curriculum, I started to do the same at Cal State Northridge. But I was also studying for the BCBA exam at that time. So my journey in development of coursework and, and saying everyone in the world is going to have to know about this was me also essentially getting a new degree, post-degree. Um, and it, retrospectively, I think I was insane. 
But it, it worked because I was so motivated. I was able to bring the BCBA coursework to Cal State Northridge. This has been a university that historically had not had any uh, of this work in game analysis. They didn't have a degree program. And then I was able to turn that into a master's degree and now have hired, you know, four tenured faculty. We have strong adjunct faculty. And then I was also able to embed it into undergraduate coursework. So now you can't be a student at CSUN and not be exposed to behavior analysis. That was my mission. <laughs> I wanted everyone to know it's there. Now, if you elect to not continue in behavior analysis, that's fine. But it was really a lot of that work that made me also realize the importance of supervision because you know coursework is important and I embedded it in the undergraduate coursework and we brought the graduate coursework there. But I realized that when we sent people out back in the field, that there was disparity between what they were experiencing during their supervision experiences. And pretty early on, I started to kind of think about quality indicators of good supervision and to structure supervision for a lot of our candidates. Um, and some of that, I think, also made me respect the degree I had received at UCLA because my clinical training was highly structured. And uh, APA had set guidelines that my mentors followed when they provided me with supervision. There were lots of lots of videos that I would have from my sessions that they would provide me with feedback after I had gone through and kind of annotated them. So that experience was helpful for me when I was kind of structuring supervision and behavior analysis because I had some background in a, in a more structured supervisory kind of relationship. So um, you, you, you received yeah. supervision in an established field, whereas we as behavior analysts are still kind of in the wild west to, to some extent. <laughs> Is that kind of what you're saying? Um, in some ways, yes, absolutely. I've come from, you know, this top program in the nation in, in providing supervision. So I had all these uh, supervisors that had structured guidelines about what I should be doing. And I was used to receiving feedback and kind of walking into every internship meeting with an advisor, expecting them to take the annotations I had further. But um, the, the thing was that I think behavior analysis then provided me with tools that made me realize we could even do that better. You know, we, we can measure performance much better. So it, in, in some ways, actually, I felt like with behavior analysis, I could see us doing competent and uh, training and supervision so much better. So it was kind of the combination of the two. It made me respect back some of the education I had received rather than just be angry that people didn't tell me about it. Are you ready to make the leap from pen and paper into the digital world? Or are you frustrated by your current system? Well, I recommend you go check out Go Lotus. Go Lotus was created by a product development expert who spent years building systems for Apple and Microsoft before her child was diagnosed with autism. In creating Go Lotus, she had one mission in mind, to create a platform that could help therapists better treat their kiddos by providing a tool that allows them to focus on the actual work and not the paperwork. Go Lotus is an intuitive, easy to use, and dare I say beautiful system. It handles every aspect of practice management, from data tracking and automatic soap notes to scheduling and billing. It's so simple, your entire team can be up and running in less than an hour. For more information, go to golotus.com forward slash register. And by using the promo code MATT, the first 100 people will receive 90 days of our data trackers completely free. And by signing up, 
you'll then receive an additional 25% off the first 12 months. So again, for more information, head on over to golotus.com forward slash register. Well, you did mention supervision, and you have a couple of other interests. Uh, you've done work in conflict resolution, uh, using robots to train staff, uh, and even <laughs> teaching fire safety. Uh, is, is there what's the common thread through all these? <laughs> I'm trying to spread the secret, Matt. <laughs> I, um, you know, I, I know that I work with many different populations, so it can kind of seem like I have different foci. Um, but I didn't find behavior analysis through a particular population. I found Skinner, and I found the methodology super sexy. So I think in many ways I gravitate toward pain points or, or when people to me socially. Um, I think to myself, how could we contribute as behavior analysts? And the common thread between all of them is, you know, this, the same thing I do with any kind of an OBM project. I um, get involved and assess the situation, do a system analysis, and then identify places we could be helpful and and provide some you know guidelines about how we could do that, and then pilot it to see if it works. Look at our intervention, show it's our intervention that's working, and it's been working really beautifully. So, for example, I know I'm working with the fire department, I'm working with NASA, so I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about the NASA project because I think it's super cool and something I'm hoping oh, yeah. that more and more behavior analysts get involved in. Oh, and, please do. <laughs> um, so, you know, NASA has been building these uh, robotics. They've been building these little bots that kind of converge together to uh, essentially function as a group of individuals that will take care of something. It's meant to... The, um, it's pretty super cool futuristic things, but it's really meant to help in the formation of stargates in the future. And, and the engineers that they have were not trained to work with all of these different machines that are supposed to come together, for example, to put in a screw outside in space. Um, they're used to suiting up, you know, and going outside themselves to put in the screw which, as you can imagine, is costly, and there's a lot of risks. Here is this high-level individual who's been educated very well, who's now getting into a suit and going out there just to put in a screw. But if they can actually learn to work with these groups of uh, bots that they've created, then that can totally save them time and energy and also reduce the risks. So. It only makes sense that this is where they would be moving to. But the problem they're facing is a lot of their engineers don't want to work with these robots. So they've developed these wonderful, beautiful machines that are super expensive, but their engineers don't have the experiences necessary to work with them. So they asked, you know, could could you be doing anything with that? And they just kind of dropped it on me during one of our meetings because I'd been meeting with different folks. and started to kind of assess the situation and I realized, well, engineers have never been taught to work with a group of people. They are used to completing the job themselves. And these robots that they're asking the engineers to work with have to function as groups of individuals. So now the engineer needs to have the skill sets to provide instruction and kind of work together with this team. We know how to do that. Um, we also know how to measure behavior of the engineer to see are they improving in that? Um, and so I started there and, you know, provided uh, some baseline data on some of the things that I was seeing engineers do and some ideas I had for basic training, very basic training. And they just thought it was brilliant. 
right? This is this is what they've been looking for. Now we're talking about engineers, so of course this is super sexy to them because they're like, okay, you, what, you, what you have to say makes sense to me. It's empirical. It's a process. Like That's, data. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> These are NASA folks. So unlike some people that turn around and twitch when we gave them data, these people were super excited about my existence. They were like, where have you been all my life? Um, and so, you know, I'd say the essence of it is, is exactly what I'm interested in with regards to everything else I do, with conflict resolution, also with the FEMA project. But when I'm working with trainers in, in the world of fire, they are these incredible, incredible people that are trying to lead groups of individuals to do these trainings. So, you know, overall, I'd say the common threat is behavior analysis. Um, it's doing assessment and then providing an intervention and, and then testing that. Um, and usually it's in the area of building leaders and helping them gain the competencies they need um, to be able to do their job well. Very nice. Um, let's get back to supervision then, because uh, <laughs> we had a lot of interest in this area. Uh, you've uh, given a talk called A Functional Approach to Supervision. Um, can you? unpack that a little bit and provide your thoughts on this? What do you mean by a functional approach to supervision? <laughs> I love that you asked that question. Um, you're excellent at doing your research there, Matt. Um, <laughs> that's awesome. I can Google with the best of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. Just a simple Google. Uh, I'm kidding. There, but, um, you know, let me tell you a little story. Uh, and, um, I'm hoping that you can kind of relate to this. I picked up hot yoga recently because I care deeply about self-care and this is something I teach a lot of my supervisees to do. And um, I was at my hot yoga studio. This is a small studio. The studio has five instructors that work for her now. She started small, but she's gained up to five instructors and now she's needed some staff. So she has an additional two staff members that help her at her studio. So she's serving as a supervisor when her original interests were to kind of start up her own hot, you know, yoga studio. And so, you know, I, I'm always looking at different models of supervision. I'm always looking everywhere I go. I'm at a restaurant, I'm looking at training, and I'm thinking about these things at all times. And I think that this example is, a, is, is one that I'm hoping you can relate to. I was kind of outside after hot yoga, and I was getting some water and I could overhear uh, the owner say to her staff member, hey, you know, what do you think about um, getting some of these dirty towels from the bin and putting them together in these bags? So when the cleaning crew comes, uh, towels, because we will have fresh towels for, uh, for our clients. And the staff member just kind of uh, hesitated and then said, no, they're going to do that anyway. That's their job. They'll, they'll replace the towels. And then I could overhear the supervisor kind of taking a few moments and then saying, well, yeah, they'll replace it, but they won't know how many to put back. And what I've noticed is that they put a small stack of new fresh towels, but if we put all the dirty towels in bags for them, they'll know to put more towels, which is really what our clients need. And then the staff member was like, okay, but I think they usually bring a lot of towels. And then I could hear almost the frustration in oh, the supervisor's yeah. voice. So she was like, um, well, I could totally help you put some of these in a bag if you want to come back and help me. 
because I do think it'd be good for us to put them in bags and put them outside. And, Did you just you want know, to jump in there and say, put the, put the damn towels in the bag? <laughs> put them away, right? Come on. I was, I was just kind of listening, and I happened to be right in between the two, so it was fantastic because I could kind of overhear the conversation and get my, my water bottle filled. And then I uh, caught a ride, actually, with the owner back to my place. And as she was sitting in the car, she says to me, you know, I'm so frustrated sometimes. It feels like you open your own place and you're working with people and and they just don't seem to get it. They don't have ownership of your place. They don't seem to understand some of the more important components of things to your clients. And I realized that she had kind of interpreted the situation as the staff member just not taking ownership. She didn't care is the way she felt about it, which has kind of made her, you know, feel defeated about what she had asked for. Mind you, she'd also packed the bags herself because the girl never made it back there to help her. So the supervisor had had to do that by herself. To me, that's a great example of the function of supervision because, you know, we, you know, she opened a studio because she herself was a great instructor and because she cared about um, health and healthy living. And she obviously could take away the towels herself and take care of the place by herself, but she can't do it alone anymore. She's going to need to multiply herself. And for the people that she's hired to be parts and pieces of the overall machine that are going to work together. So she's multiplying herself with with good supervision and she's struggling doing that because I could tell, you know, and she was even saying this to me, I'm going to go back and, and give her some feedback about the, her tone of voice. And the way she said that to me, I knew she's never going to approach the staff member or if she does, it's going to come from a place of anger. And I thought this is, this is the function of supervision. I need to multiply myself and I need to be able to ask people to be my eyes and ears and to do the things I do, because there's no way I can service all my clients. If a supervisor's job is to provide the highest quality of services that they're offering, they can only do it if they have an army that's gonna work with them. Um, and, and being able to get them to do that is really important. So I, I think in a lot of my talks, try to bring people back to the essence of why we supervise. Um, in that case, there were quite a few skills that, you know, that supervisor could gain that would really help that, that relationship. And for these reasons, I think when I wrote the book, I provided a lot of information on how to give feedback, for example, or how to put forth instructions. And then I wrote the book with the supervisor in mind, realizing that the best way for a supervisor to come on board, at least this is what I do, is for them to experience what it means to have to supervise other people as quickly as possible. So when I take on new supervisees, I put them in a position to provide other people with feedback as quickly as possible. Something new they learn, something little they learn. I put them very quickly in a position to have to teach someone else or to have to provide feedback to someone else about how to do it. Because when a supervisee sees the perspective of how difficult it is to think about how to do something, to have that task analysis, but then to provide people with feedback about it, they respect my feedback giving very much. <laughs> they gain a whole different perspective. Um, and, and the book is written for the supervisee to seek out these experiences for that reason. So I hope I answered the question you oh, had yeah. for me. But. Well, I think the, <laughs> the story told, you know, it's like, 
kind of like almost like the picture tells a thousand words and uh i think the same is true for that story you know my my I had kind of like the opposite experience uh, about a month or two ago. My family and I went to a restaurant here in New Hampshire, and from the moment the hostess greeted us to the to the wait staff to the random staff that we just kind of bumped into, the service was off the charts outstanding. Ooh. And I, this part of me, just as not only a behavior analyst but you know someone who kind of interviews people it's like i should probably find the owner or the whoever's running <laughs> this joint and 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 really like i i was actually I was talking to my wife like so, someone could write a book about this place like you know I, like it was just so well run and the and, and consistent uh and all the staff were super psyched to be there it was mm-hmm. it was an unbelievable experience and at no point did i assume that that happened by accident that was seemed to be a you know a, a very someone was is deliberately programming those interactions you know and i don't mean that in a, in a pejorative way i mean that of course no. in, a, in, a, in a way that is uh you know um, planned and uh you know intentional so yeah no i totally agree with you and and uh, i'm willing to bet that it were begun with the leadership Oh yeah, um, because you know they make all of the difference in the world in in employees' satisfaction and the culture of things. If the culture of things is empathic and compassionate, people seem to be happy about where they are. You can see that that's true about their leadership and and how they are building that culture. Oh yeah, the the, the, yeah, the positive vibes in that place were just you know screaming at you. Uh, it was pretty cool. So. Um, all right, so uh, let, let's turn the page a little bit. I know uh, you've done a lot of work with technology. I already kind of referenced that a little bit with the uh, the bots, uh, <laughs> but uh, in your in your uh, closing keynote at Haba, you talked you, you showed some um, uh, some video of the of the robots you were using for training and stuff like that. Tell tell us how you you got involved with that <laughs> and what that's all about, because there's I'm willing to bet there's some folks in the audience who are not familiar with your work in that area. Yeah, so and should yeah. be familiar. With your work in that <laughs> Yeah, I think that a lot of times when I'm speaking about supervision and leadership, people don't see the relationship at all to some of the some of the work that I'm doing with with the robots. And um, I, I told you a little bit about my dad being a civil engineer, and so with my background, I think. Um, it makes sense that about 10 years ago, I started to get super interested in using and leveraging technology because I realized that when we are building training, when we um, set up training sessions that have behavior skills training and go well beyond instruction, provide people with opportunities to practice that which we're teaching them in safe environments, and then to provide them with feedback so that they're not just learning how to do something in that environment, but that the skills generalize, I realized that there are formulas we're using. And that's really what artificial intelligence is. It's programming different formulas to behave differently under different contexts so we can identify what those contexts are going to be. Um, so I started to think about using the robot about 10 years ago. And at that time, I think most people thought I was crazy, um, especially because I had a humanoid robot and people were like, I remember one of the papers I sent to Jabba and reviewers asked me to send in videos because I think they probably imagined a tin can moving and couldn't believe a robot could do a preference assessment. But um, 
you know, now I think there's a lot more interest and people are beginning to kind of accept that that uh, virtual reality and robotics, artificial intelligence as a whole is here. I think this is where we should be as behavior analysts. And my interest in it is to just kind of leverage um, technology to make us more accessible. Um, for example, the conflict resolution workshop we've developed with Chelsea Carter, this could be used in, by folks in medicine. It could be used by uh, folks in other organizations. Uh, I know that NASA has expressed some interest in some of the conflict resolution work we're doing. But it's, you know, we get to have 20 people or so, and then we go through behavior skills training. We have these performance tools we use, we observe people, we provide them with some good feedback. But if I could move that, and that's some of the work that we're beginning to do, to a virtual world where some of those scenarios are embedded and the person gets to practice and get feedback in that world in a safe setting, um, then I've made the conflict resolution training that much more accessible to many more people. Um, and I think a lot of our work in behavior analysis is so conducive for artificial intelligence. I just wish more of us would be in it because... Um, you know, the work we're doing with the robot, for example, the robot collects data on information when they're teaching. So, you know, I have him simulate a child, for example, with problem behaviors and those times he's collecting data back for us. Um, and then he's able to provide all sorts of feedback, either through changing behavior or direct feedback, depending on this type of project we're working on. Um, and, you know, folks think we're brilliant, but all we are is that we're behavior analysts <laughs> involved in robotics. Um, and I, I would love to see more of us involved there. So what was the way in which you actually got involved with robotics in the first place? Like, you know, obviously these <laughs> humanoid robots, is, you don't just go to Walmart or Target and, 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 and pluck them off the shelves. So <laughs> You can now. <laughs> Maybe those haven't made it to North New England yet. Yeah, uh, so. um, <laughs> yeah, if you're interested, I think they're beginning to actually have uh, elementary robotics uh, toys for, for kids. That's a population they're targeting a lot. No, so I think the work actually started, I was out in Florida visiting um, John Bailey at the time because I, when I was developing the program at Cal State Northridge, I realized I wanted to get supervision right. And I visited with and talked with a lot of folks that were kind enough to serve as mentors, John Bailey, Jim Carr, people that had done great programs, had the, you know, paved the way in this area. And then, you know, when I was visiting different places and trying to learn about how to do supervision better, they would be kind enough to invite me to go and see some of their laboratory work. So I was sitting in, in lab and uh, it was actually John Bailey's lab. I was talking with a few students at the time about my research um, and my interest in feedback. I'm very interested in some of the things uh, in feedback giving that make it effective so that we can be more efficient when we give people feedback. And, uh, and they asked me, you know, so what are the dependent measures? And I was kind of going through the performance tools we're using. And um, as I was going through it, I realized uh, my problem was that I wasn't happy with uh, an actor as a simulated client. So it was it, it was this interesting uh, discussion where I was used to kind of people asking me about my research, but not having an open discussion forum anymore. Uh, about some of the things about my research that makes me happy and some things I'd like to change. And that discussion really made me realize I wanted uh, an actor that was highly systematic, that would be pre-programmed 
to put forth different scripts and for those scripts to be um, maintainable through lots of different people so that they would behave exactly the same way across many different people if possible. And actors can't do that. Even when we put, you know, uh, Bluetooth devices and we talk to them in their ear, they're never going to be as systematic across all the different individuals. That person walking in changes their behavior. And that made me start thinking, well, I wonder if I can get a robot to do it. <laughs> really, that was it. I, I came back to CSUN and started to look into what are some of the robots that are out there and how can we do this as a lab? And my lab was super excited about it. And we thought about using audio tapes. There was some fantastic work from 70s and peer-reviewed articles and gave analysis, actually, that had used like audio recordings to do it. And then I came across the robot I use now. And called them up and said, hey, I'm an educator. How do I get one of these? <laughs> and then that's how my journey started. <laughs> Are you looking for a new job, but you're overwhelmed with all the emails that you're getting from various ABA agencies? What if there was someone who was in your corner and could help you find the perfect job placement? Well, that person exists. Barbara Voss has been working as a recruiter for over 30 years, and her company, HRIC, specializes in placing BCBAs in permanent full-time positions throughout the United States. Barbara has been placing BCBAs since 2011, so she knows our business, and she offers personalized service to any BCBA looking for a new position. She also helps companies looking to hire BCBAs, too. Here are just some of the things Barbara can help you with. She can provide information about salary ranges in different markets across the country. She can help you write your resume. She can coordinate and prepare you for the interview process and even help negotiate the right salary for you. And best of all, there are no charges to any candidate for all of these services. When you are ready to make a change and want to work with someone who will listen to you and understand what you need in a new position, contact Barbara at HRIC. To schedule a confidential discussion, head over to hricolorado.com. Again, that's hricolorado.com and hit the contact button to connect with Barbara. You won't be disappointed. Did you have support from other departments in the university to, to, to make all this stuff work? Or did you, is this something that you guys kind of figured out on your, on your, on your own? Or, you know, I, I have to imagine putting myself in your shoes, I'm, I'm not... Despite having a podcast, I'm not the most tech savvy person, so I would need a lot of help with that. So, were you able? How, how did that? What was it like implementing that? I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, so I, I totally hear you. I was very nervous about moving toward using robots because at the time we didn't have any program programming skills, at least not that type. I'd done some programming at my uh, graduate degree program, but not nowhere near being able to kind of program a human and robot. Um, you know, first, I think the organization that sold me the robot, the person who gave me the robot, was very supportive. He immediately was so excited about the line of research. When I told him about what I was thinking, I asked him if he thought it was a little insane, we're a little different, we're not his users that he was used to. You know, we were asking him to come to the Department of Psychology. He was super psyched. He actually agreed to not just sell the robot, but to come out and train my students and I in the use of him at the beginning. And I think it was, you, really, you know, that his excitement was infectious. He immediately then kind of connected me to other people that were interested in the use of the robot, but these were computer scientists. And I think it grew from, from that place. But also, 
from the fact that he was very excited about helping me, I was able to use some of the things that he was providing me with, to argue for buying the robot with my dean, who was very supportive at the time. So she uh, forked up the money for me to buy my first robot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the thing that I think is super cool is once I moved to using technology, so many good new things also came my way. Um, I Like the NASA project, I would have never ever in my life went and sought that out. It happened to be that in conversations with my colleagues in engineering, they really like my team. They love the students I work with. And I am fortunate enough to be able to bring individuals who historically would not have gone on for higher education, but also historically are unlikely to go into science, technology, and math. And now I have this lab, this diverse lab of individuals. I've been able to get interested in behavior analysis and technology because it's not very, um, you know, not relevant to them. It seems very applicable to them. And so they, they wanted to work with us. And so they involved us in the NASA project. But honestly, at the beginning, they had no idea how. <laughs> they, they were just kind of like, join us. <laughs> um, you know, I think I, as soon as I made the decision, um, other groups began to show me that they wanted us involved and that we had something to contribute, particularly when it comes to measuring behavior. So many, so many computer scientists are interested in being able to do interventions and then to look to see what the effect of their interventions are. Statistics, right? And then that doesn't work, so they do all these self-report measures. But once we show them that they could actually look at behavior change, they think we're brilliant. Like there's nothing better on the face of the planet. So we've been uh, we've been very fortunate. Yeah, you know, it reminds me that uh, a lot of the, or it's, it's, I won't say a lot, but a handful of the uh, JAB group, you know, type folks, uh, oftentimes have a, a STEM background. You know, and uh, yeah. it's probably there's, there's probably some or likely some affinity there for the the orderliness of of, of behavior when looked at through our framework. So, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I can probably think of like at least a, almost a half a dozen folks in the EAB world that I know whose bachelor's degrees are in like mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, yeah. yeah, so there's a lot of fun stuff coming down the road. So where do you think things are going, uh, you know, kind of tech-wise, um, you, know, you, you know, you've mentioned Obviously, robotics, uh, AI, virtual reality. We had we had an episode a few uh, a few episodes back on tech trends and behavior analysis, yeah, uh, yeah. where we, we we talked about some of this stuff. But uh, I guess from your perspective, and in, in the light of the work that you're doing, um, what what are some things that you see perhaps coming down the, the road here, uh, maybe in the next five to ten years or so? So get your crystal ball out. You know, <laughs> I don't want to put you on the spot totally, but uh, you know, um, you know, I think about ten years ago when I became interested in robotics, I, I knew that we were nowhere near where we needed to be, um, but I could tell that this area is going to grow, and that's mostly because I was beginning to see some of the most important areas, most potent reinforcers for our society to begin to move to those things like gaming. Um, and so I knew that we're going to see the growth of robotics and virtual reality, because if, if 
folks are moving there in those areas, that means that there's going to be funds there. Um, and today, the robot we use and, and how we can program them is so much easier and so much more fluid than 10 years ago. But growing with it has been fantastic. And if I have to say what's, you know, what I think is going to happen, uh, the truth is I think people have not quite accepted the fact that artificial intelligence is here. It's a part of how Facebook makes decisions. It's a part of how things are happening in, in our world with what we're being marketed to do. Uh, and some of the most successful organizations like Amazon and Walmart, a lot of what they're doing is using things like artificial intelligence and virtual reality to train their folks. The military, the armed forces, they've been using this technology for some time and there are pain points for them that we could so easily solve because we're behavior analysts um, for example they're interested in how can they get the skills that they teach to generalize they have these beautiful virtual worlds and they're so worried about the very similitude of that world with the real world but they don't have to worry about every single variable in that virtual world. It's certain things we can program that are necessary that set the occasion for that generalization to occur. We could help. Um, and we could use it ourselves. I really think that in the in the years to come, um, I think we could be doing, you know, we're beginning to do a lot of this work ourselves in training of behavior technicians. We're creating virtual things for our behavior technicians. We're doing that with ethical decision-making. We're doing that with natural environment teaching. So people can experience, collect data, and undergo you know, feedback uh, before going across with a child. I think we could be doing a lot more of that for ourselves in our field, and I think we could be helping others because there's a lot we can offer them, um, and they need help. Yeah, I think the... Uh, the Behavior Me folks are doing a lot of that. They had the whole VR setup at uh, ABAI, and people were had the goggles on and stuff like that. So yeah, it's uh, it, it's 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 pretty. Yeah, cool. I think I got a got a moment to experience uh, some of the stuff that they're trying out there. Yeah, yeah, I think that they've got the right message, and that is that we should begin this journey. Yes. Awesome, awesome. Um, all right. So um, what I'd like to do is get into some listener questions and I think we're probably most of these questions are getting back to the topic of supervision um, mm -hmm. and, and sometimes you know listener questions are almost like a barometer of, of, of the pain points of, of what people are feeling in the field so it's, it's, it's not surprising that I got a lot of questions on this uh, particularly given your uh, expertise in this area so um, uh, let's see, I got a kind of a grab bag here. So these might not be in any specific order here. So, uh, let's see. Uh, um, all right. So Celia asks, uh, what are your thoughts on addressing barriers to learning before teaching supervisees to apply behavior analytic content and supervision? Um, so for example, if there are deficits in skills such as receiving feedback, even basic writing skills, software skills, and things like that. So mm -hmm. how, how, how would you how would you support someone in that role who has kind of like, you know, some of these uh, skill deficits in almost what we consider prerequisite areas? I love this question because it definitely shows that Celia has been supervising individuals um, because what we realize is that the baselines are so different, right? So we can't exactly jump in and say, here's what we need to do when our supervisees have difficulties with you know, writing sentences or uh, communication.
communicating with a supervisor in a professional manner or with, with clients. Um, I think that I definitely would say that teaching those, what I consider those um, preliminary skills is very important. In fact, I have a chapter on this in the supervision book on building your pivotal skills. Um, because as BCBAs also, there are lots of employers that will say our, our board certified legal analysts have a hard time writing reports that um, funding agencies can read and understand. So these are skills that I think we certainly need to build from the very beginning. Um, I think the question you asked, though, was should we teach these before we begin to teach behavior analysis? And I'm, I'm not sure we can do an elementary, like, let me teach you how to write before I teach you more about reinforcement. But I certainly think that it should be programmed for as a part of the supervisory experience. Um, what I a little bit in the chapter is I have them um, give me some sample material under the best situations that they can give it so that I can have a baseline on some of those. And I'm frank with them. I tell them, look, you know, here are some places that I could definitely see you need growth in. Here are some places that you have strength and we're going to capitalize on those strengths. But if I need to work on some of these skills, uh, our supervisory experience is going to take a, a little bit longer because these are some things that you need to have in your repertoire to be a good supervisor. Do you have any thoughts on changing the requirements for supervision in the future going forward, uh, especially in light of these varying baselines that you described? Um, I love our task list. And in fact, that, you know, as I was finishing the book, I knew of the newest task list that was going to be released in 2022. So we addressed those in our book. We have aligned ourselves with the future task list items that are coming out. I like the task list because the BACB has done a fantastic job of surveying board certified behavior analysts about what are some of the skills that people need to have in behavior analysis. But then, of course, there's all these other things. I noticed that you interviewed, um, uh, you know, the authors on uh, empathic and compassionate um, uh, service delivery. Well, these are skills we need to have. Now, can the BACB include all of these? And can your internship experience have these little markers of all of, you know, do you write well? Do you speak well? Do you smile at people? And do you look at them when you're greeting them? When you walk in, do you build rapport in a way that people feel like you can hold them, be there for them? Um, I think that those are part of the supervisory experience and we'll need to find ways to definitely include it. But I don't know if the task list or the BACB necessarily needs to be responsible for that. I think we need to develop a larger set of competencies that we agree uh, supervising needs to have and to recognize that there's some of those are going to be within behavior analysis. They're going to be specific to your skill set as a competent behavior analyst and then the rest are going to be in your skill set as a competent clinician. Medicine does this. Um, clinical psychology does this. You know, we, we recognize that the clinician as a whole needs to have a broad set of skills. Got it. Uh, let's see. Ronnie writes in, I love her structured supervision file. Uh, <laughs> is she creating one for the current task list? Uh, what is the structured uh, supervision file and uh, wh wh why? Uh, what does she like so much about it or what is there to like about it? I love that. Um, well, I think what probably Ronnie is referring to is for some time when we developed the material that we were developing at CSUN and using with our own supervisees, um, I was posting them for free on my own lab website. So folks could go download the performance tools 
and utilize some of the some of the performance tools we were using for each of the competencies. Um, but then I realized that there was some abuse of that information. People were using it without either crediting the source or kind of adapting it without noticing that there was a function to the performance tool to begin with. So some of my colleagues uh, recommended, you know, Jane Howard and folks from Western Michigan that I turn it into a book so that they could also use it for practical experience with students. So I put some time in developing all these different chapters for for that experience, and we aligned it with the newest task list. So to answer Ronnie's question, um, you know, I, I can't put those back up on the website, but they're certainly in the new book, and Springer gives you free access to all the performance tools once you purchase the book. So you can then download adapt to whatever situation you need all of the performance tools we have all right she closes her email with uh, thanks ellie you've helped, helped so many people so i'll just share that little feedback Aww, with you. how good does that feel i know i know reinforcement <laughs> works on us too doesn't it right um all righty um i'm just kind of skipping around here uh jen asks uh how do we continue to grow as a science while staying true to our science being likable and accessible for folks and ensuring that newly certified behavior analysts or new individuals in the field are relying on that science in their practice versus having a bag of tricks. Love that question. I do too. Right on. Um, Yeah. How do we teach these new skills? We're realizing that our field needs to gain to be more likable, to be accessible to people, to be more empathic, um, but then at the same time, stay true to our science. And I, I don't think these are mutually exclusive. Um, you know, I, uh, this is going to kind of sound super nerdy, but I, I think like Skinner had this, this slow down and he could see these variables that are happening pre-behavior and post-behavior, post-sedence. And he just kind of could see the world in this like interactive way. And I think if we're able to kind of take a bigger perspective of the world around us, you know, we would see that, for example, being good change agents means building rapport because we have to be more reinforcing. Why would anyone want to do what I ask them to do if I'm not reinforcing? If I don't, you know, set the occasion by just appearing as, you know, establish the operations to access something with me, an activity with me as a reinforcer. So I think we could be in supervision and in our classes really connecting behavior analysis back to some of these things we want folks to learn. I don't think we need to move away from the science at all. I think the science actually should make us much more compatible. I think that's a little Skinner's saw at least. I'd like to think so. Awesome. All right. Uh, let's see. Jane wants to know. <laughs> You're like, that's awesome, Ellie. I don't see your world. You're crazy. No, I do. No, I'm sorry. I just, uh, I, I this is, this is where I need that uh, the more soft skill training. I'm just progressing through the questions here so I can make sure all the people who took the time to write in uh, get heard. Um, Got it. Let's see. Uh, Jane, Jane said, I would like to know what advice uh, Ellie can give to people supervising others with uh, less than stellar backgrounds in behavior analysis. And I, I'm not going to – she cited an example and I'm, I'm not going to quote the example verbatim. Mm-hmm. Because it might be identified <laughs> in a certain way, you know, by by the the the, the, the person who uh, demonstrated the less than stellar background, shall we say? But I guess the another way of looking, you know, so if you're working with someone, you're providing supervision, and they're not mm-hmm. ba- 
basically grasping some of that fundamental concepts, uh, mm -hmm. you know, that, that they, you, you think they should have under their belt at that particular point in their, in their mm -hmm. educational timeline. So you say, mm -hmm. say you have someone who's actually gone through all the verified coursework and things like that, mm -hmm. yet still doesn't understand the difference between, say, like, you know, positive and negative reinforcement, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that um, that's exactly why I argue for a competency-based supervision rather than a duration-based supervision. Um, I think that if we're focused on the outcome, so we have some ideas about what we need people to achieve um, and when we would respect them as colleagues and have them join our force and represent us well in behavior analysis, when we kind of have those indicators, uh, which for us were the 10 competencies we outlined in our supervision book, I think then you could be working toward those and not worry so much about the, the time it takes to get there. Because sometimes learners are super slow at the beginning of that journey. But then once they catch on, once they kind of can tell where you're going in your journey, they can speed up really fast. And I've had the other way, I've had people I start out with and they're stellar. It just makes sense to them. But then somewhere in between in their relationship, they fall apart. And I realize that there are other things I need to be working on, interpersonal relationships, communication. Um, so for me, I think that th this issue would be fixed if we focus on the competencies and are honest with our supervisees. Hey, it sounds like you're having a harder time with some of these things. And here are some ideas I have about how we could do them. But I also have to say, you know, sometimes people take coursework that just um, didn't seem to bring them there. So they've had classes that uh, were like, wait a minute, you've had this course. You already should know um, the basic, basic ways you can measure behavior. And yet you don't seem to have it in your repertoire at all. I think it's important that we don't discourage people, too, because they went through and invested time and energy to go through a course. Um but we just, I think, need to keep them inspired enough to learn to do it. So pick, pick your battle. Begin with one. Begin with one thing that you can teach really, really well and get them, get them um, seduced, I guess, as Pat Farber would put it. All Seduce right. them in to want more, to put more time. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. Um, all right. Uh, we've had a couple other questions kind of dribbled in here and there, but I think the answers that you provide to the ones that we've talked about already have kind of addressed them all. So, um, Ellie, I'd like to uh, uh, close this interview out with my favorite question I asked uh, uh, all my uh, interviewees. Uh, what is your advice for the newly minted BCBA? <laughs> I love it. And when I listen to other people answer these things, I think to myself, oh, that's a great answer. Wonderful. Um, and then now you're asking me and I'm like, oh, 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 oh. Um, <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I get it. I get it. I, I, I would uh, I would stammer and stutter more than I usually do uh, if, if pressed with this question. So <laughs> um, I get it. I I have to say probably my the advice I would give. Uh, you know, that would be uh, maybe a little different than some of the things I've heard um, thus far from a lot of fantastic, fantastic people that you've interviewed, is that to be okay with doing a lot more free work. In my experience, a lot of the things that have come to me were not because I joined a team and said, what can I get out of this? Or not because I joined a team and said, hey, I'm a BCPA. I know what I'm doing. Uh, do you know anything about behavior? I joined teams willing to listen, um, hoping that I could show I was 
my early hours have been for free. And a lot of that free work has resulted in many more people wanting to work with me and offering me projects and offering so much more than I think I would have gotten if I started out with, hey, you know, I have my PhD. I'm a smart person and I can provide something or other. Um, so I'd say accept free work, accept to collaborate with people, accept to learn alongside other people before you immediately jump in and wonder, what can I get out of this? Not that people are, but uh, I think that, that that's worked well for me. Wow, that is a very unique piece of advice. I don't think we've had anything even remotely near that uh, uh, in, in the uh, number of interviews that I've done. So uh, thanks for that unique contribution. I, I think that advice is particularly helpful in areas that you've certainly worked in in terms of reaching out to the STEM fields. But you know, I think anything outside of our, our kind of DD autism focus is going to require that in many respects, you know, so there's a lot of people who are doing this, you know, who are starting to try to get a toehold in like the, the health and fitness area and things like that. And a lot of that's going to be, you know, hanging around, you know, gyms and things like that, working with trainers and, and, and there's no, uh, oftentimes it's not like a clear, uh, route to payment under those circumstances, uh, and I'm just using that as one example out of many. So, yeah, that, that's, that's great advice, and thanks for providing that perspective. And thanks for being so patient with me for for getting this uh, interview scheduled, Ellie. Yeah, you. Uh, well, I think our schedules just did not overlap. You're a busy man, uh, but I am so excited to finally make it to to this podcast. I use your podcasts with my students all the time, so it was very exciting to get to be on it. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining me today. Take care. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Behavioral Observations Podcast with Matt Sicoria. You can find Matt's notes on this episode at www.behavioralobservations.com. We also invite you to stay connected with us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash behavioral observations and on Twitter at Behavior Podcast. 